thanks, hi everyone. Uh, well, listen, just everyone, come and come and sit down. Give them a round of applause as they're sitting there. Thank you. I think you can go whenever. Uh, um, and what I'd like you all to do uh, for the Assemble Cup is introduce yourselves, in fact, and, t and tell us what you all do, how you got here, which bus you were on. And, um, but, but really, your particular role in France Lehar's The Merry Widow. Let's start with Andrew. Some of you may have seen on stage, or in this sort of... Uh, you're probably, you're all his close friends and possibly family, in which case, welcome too. Anyway, um, there's a singer here. Well, someone asked me... Um, about 10 minutes ago, what was the, when did I first sing here? And I've got to the stage where I can't remember. <laughs> I think it was 1980 something, and it was um, in Salome, in the Joachim Herz production, if you remember. Uh, Joe Barstow was such a, a fantastic Salome in that. And I played the memorable role of the Cappadocian, who has at the most two lines uh, in the first 10 minutes in the first 10 minute, minutes of the opera and when i opened the score i thought oh this is a great way to start my uh, career with english national opera i shall be i shall be off stage after 10 minutes i'll be on, on my way home but no Joachim hertz had different views he wanted all the characters regardless of the number of lines they had to sing to keep making reappearances throughout the entire show. Uh, so, in, in fact, I was stuck there till the end. And what made it worse was that... This is great, this. Are you enjoying The Merry Widow? I love it. It was a lovely... Uh, no, no, we'll get to that in a minute. No, it was, it was a lovely experience because one of the other members of the cast, who, all, who also uh, vocally disappeared after the first ten minutes, had an open bar going in his dressing room. <laughs> And he'd, he'd be saying, come in, come on, come on, come and have a drink, come and have a drink. So all night long, uh, throughout the Salome, uh, anyone who wasn't on stage would be popping into his dressing room for a quick drink. So when we got to the curtain calls, it was a wonder that any of us could still stand up. But that was Salome, you know, whatever year it was. Uh, uh, now, the, but this yes. is Mary Widow, isn't that, that's it? That's right. That's right. That's yeah. Well done, Andrew. This is Mary Andrew Widow, Shore, by the way. Um, <laughs> the um, th yes, uh, and of course, the idea of um, drinking and partying bears absolutely no relationship to this show at all. I'm, None I'm, whatsoever. I'm sure. yeah. There's no partying goes no. on whatsoever. No, no, no. I played the ridiculous Baron Zita, ambassador of uh, Pontevedro. Uh, in Paris, and uh, the thing is, Pontevedro is absolutely skint. There's no money at all. Uh, the country is facing complete bankruptcy, and uh, and the uh, is that a familiar story? I don't know. Um, but there's one woman who has been left millions, absolutely millions, and she must not be allowed to marry anyone other than a Pontevedrian. And uh, so th I, that is my task throughout the show. I've got to find a Pontevedrian to marry the Merry Widow so that we can keep her money in the country. That's my overriding challenge. Uh, thank you, Andrew. A quick round of applause for Andrew there. Yeah. Um, the, the rest of your introductions don't have to be so long, but they can be. <laughs> But they can be, they can be, they absolutely can be. Um, Alison. Um, I'm Alison Martin. I'm the harpist in the orchestra. Um, delighted to be so. Uh, and I first came here much, much the same time, actually, in the 80s with Mark Elder. And um, I remember being on trial doing Meistersinger and Mark saying, Alison, Alison, do you, do you know what's expected of you? And I said, yes, yes. No idea what was expected of me. And I <laughs> had to play the big harp and the little harp. So it was a sort of baptism rather. Sorry. <laughs> well, you had to, I suppose you had to play the guitar the music that, that Beckmesser Beck plays. Yes, yeah, yes, to accompany Beckmesser. Right. Yes, yeah. That's right. But it's the little classic help. Yeah, yeah. Uh, thank, yeah. thank you. And we'll hear, more about the, we'll hear more about the orchestra next. My name's Max Webster. I'm directing The Merry Widow. Um, 
DNA was actually the place I saw my first opera too, and much to the credit of this house, I remember it very, very clearly. I was a teenager, so not that much long after Andrew's first appearance here at the house. Um, and I remember it all comes back to that somehow. <laughs> I remember very clearly a beautiful production of Fidelio with a very empty stage and a big wooden cross. And I remember the extraordinary moment of this entire cross lifting up. And there they were, hearing an opera chorus for the first time, the chorus of prisoners, singing praise to the sun and kind of realising opera was a very kind of very powerful thing as a teenager here. So that's very exciting to be back here directing now. And uh, this is Agnaton you're getting a, a sneak re-preview re of. <laughs> so appropriate fan Is that what we can you. hear? This is Agnaton, yeah. yeah. Darren. <laughs> my name's Darren Ware. I'm the wig and makeup supervisor for The Merry Widow. Ian, it was my first job when I left art school almost 30 years ago. I've been back a couple of times since, but this is like the third time. So it's really good to be back. We've got some amazing things to work on. Very lucky to have some very colourful and glamorous costumes and wigs to make up. So um, it, it's a good job we're looking forward to. And what's the you're going to see a live demonstration because Emma is going to be uh, bewigged, yes, what's the correct yes, verb, yes. Uh, by, by, by Darren. You're going to see the, the art, the craft and virtuosity that goes into, into that process. Something that probably we all slightly take for granted as punters watching the, watching the show. The, 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 the time and the dedication and the sheer creative genius that goes into making these, uh, this, these wigs and this wig in particular. Um, I just, when I've last been in this position and in, in front of you, some of you all here, uh, often we've been talking about uh, works of great and high tragedy, uh, Porgy and Bess or Benjamin Britten's The War Requiem. I, I just wonder for all of you um, what this piece is. Now, look, Operetta, 1905, is it too simple? Or, or, may, or maybe it's doing a, uh, doing a far too relativist postmodern thing to try and, try and find a darkness. We've already alluded to the, a country's bankruptcy. Well, that's one potential reference, I guess. Uh, anyway, um, but, the, but I just wonder, how do you all approach this? Max, how, how do you think of what, what you need to do as a director? Because after all, of course, it's a fizzing uh, comedy. It's going to give us all a great time in, in the theatre. But what else do you have to do to sustain, uh, to s sustain our interest in, you know, to, to, to keep cast and audience together through the whole show? Well, I suppose the, the first thing is probably to talk a bit about the music. And one of the things that's extraordinary about The Merry Widow is the quality of the writing. And there are very few pieces of operetta or musical theatre or indeed opera that consistently produce extraordinary tune after extraordinary tune. And that's a huge achievement. And not only are they wonderful tunes, but they are orchestrated with a level of richness and density that wasn't often done in the operetta world. And so you hear kind of almost like the musical equivalent of a climped painting, which is something very vibrant and shining. But obviously the fact that it's great music and beautiful tunes doesn't really account for the fact that the Merry Widow became an enormous cultural phenomenon. So the Merry Widow is the most performed piece of musical theatre in the 20th century, which means there have been more performances of the Merry Widow than there have of Guys and Dolls, of The Magic Flute, of The Marriage of Figaro. There was a day in Buenos Aires when there were 12 performances running concurrently. There were Merry Widow cigars, there were Merry Widow Graftenberg balloons. It's the highest selling piece of sheet music of all time. The waltz from the May Widow sheets music has outsold the Mozart piano sonatas, Bach partitas, all these things. It was a cultural phenomenon at the turn of the century in the way that, say, maybe Hamilton might be now, in that mm. it clearly spoke to the zeitgeist and had something very important to say. And of course, it said this important thing in a very light way. I'm not arguing that it's a piece about the meaning of meaning. Uh, it's a comedy, it's bright, it's funny, it's sexy, it's silly, it's full of puns, jokes, vaudeville, burlesque slapstick, good tunes, silly jokes. But something at the heart of it clearly meant it resonated what was happening in 1905. And of course, 1905 is an extraordinary year. 1905 is the year of the first Russian Revolution. It's the year Einstein discovered general relativity. It's the year Freud published three essays on sexuality. It's uh, the height of the suffragette movement. And the winds of change are blowing fast through Europe. And so The Merry Widow is a high comedy with extraordinary music about a working class woman who walks into this old Pontevedrian embassy. And the embassy is full of old 
bankrupt men. And there she is, a glamorous, rich, and this is now the important thing, working class woman. And because she has cash, that means she suddenly has power. And all the old uncertainties of the 19th century where we believe that kind of God gave us hierarchically class and gender and race and things in totally like unshakable categories. In 1905, these categories are suddenly up for grabs. And The Merry Widow is a high comedy of what happens when we take these traditionalist uh, patriarchal values and give them a good shake around. So it's, in a way, she became the emblem of the emergent 20th century with extraordinary music and joie de vivre. That was beautiful. Could you just give Max a round of applause then? <laughs> the, 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 source, the source material, though, again, and apologies for having read Wikipedia recently. Um, the, uh, but the, the, but apologies, I saw some, some of you photocopied it, so you, know, you may as well be here, really. Anyway, but um, the, the, the thing is, Matt, is it right? The source material goes back to the mid 19th century of French plays, is that right? 1861? French play, a successful so, French play. So the, the, were, were those same themes, were the themes changed by the, uh, by the librettos in any way in making, making the book, in making the, the libretto in 1905? Or, or are those precisely those themes of turning over patriarchies and working class women, the cash and all that? Was that, was that there in the 1860s as well? You know, is, it, is it radical then and radical in 1905 in that way? Well, comedy's always slightly subversive. That Figaro was sung in the French Revolution, wasn't it? So the big offbeat of, I will, I will uh, change things. See, off he goes. And like, it's throwing things up. It's, Figaro was challenging Droit de Seigneur in that period, in the French, period of the French Revolution. And so it's still with comedy and verve and vim. Uh, I don't completely know how much changes the way. The French play is much, much longer and much less funnier, and it doesn't have any music, which is why it hasn't been, <laughs> hasn't been revived for a long time. But I know they were very, very keen not to have Lehar. Lehar was the second choice. So some other chap whose name is not remembered by history had written all this music, and they got Lehar in a couple of weeks before the show opened to write things, and he rewrote it very fast. And, anyway, and then the management thought it was so awful. They rehearsed all this, and about a week before the show opened, they offered him a bribe to pull out. They thought it was so bad and it was going to be such a turkey. They offered him a cash bribe and he wouldn't pull out. <laughs> and it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't a success at the, at the beginning, but at the very beginning, it, you know, it took a couple of weeks before word went round Vienna that this is where you had to be, the Theater and Fiennes in, yes. in 1905, right? Uh, uh, Andrew Allison, from your perspective as singer and musician here, precisely the density and richness and the thing that made this, as Max was saying, the most successful piece of musical theater, or music uh, words staging of the 20th century, um, how, how do you how do you account for that richness and that popularity from, from the pit as harpist and, and on stage as Well, I was just thinking, you mentioned uh, uh, Strauss. Did someone mention Strauss? No, but, but, no, but, but, but I will but do. Good. <laughs> Which no, one are we thinking of? Are, are you talking about Salome or are you thinking about Johan? Well, 1905, or that, or that when this was first produced, it's the same year that Salome right, came exactly. out. Right, yeah. exactly. And yes. an interesting uh, thing there, Hoffmannsthal is reputed to have said if, if Lehar had written, <laughs> written the music for Rosenkavalier, it would have been a really good opera. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, actually, give that a bit of thought, yeah, and yeah. there's a lot in that, isn't there? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but now, what was your question? Well, the, que the question, it doesn't, it, honestly, honestly, it doesn't matter. But it was, um, it was about how you deal with the, uh, well, how, how you think of the, the, the richness of, 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 of the score, Andrew. Well, and, I just love it. I just love it. I just love it. I think, I mean, Velia is uh, one of the, the greatest Started uh, melodies. Two. Sung in Act Two. It's one of the greatest that melodies has, but... that was ever written. It's, it's absolutely perfect. Uh, and almost every number. Uh, has its own musical perfection. It's rather sad that I don't get to sing any of them. <laughs> uh, but, um, but no, it's, it's wonderful. And I think that's what carries the audience through. And uh, yes. That's all I can say about that. Yeah, that's fine. Uh, Alison, from the score, when your harpers, you mentioned Wagner, and, and uh, Andrew's mentioned Strauss, uh, that definitely happened. Um, so it, it's just, you know, how does Lehar's writing in terms of the, the way he's writing for your instrument in particular and the textures he's creating? Because I mean, his training is a bit unorthodox. He's largely self-taught. His dad's a, a, a bandmaster. So his, his, his feet are on different musical earth than, than Wagner or Richard Strauss from the start. I just, I, yeah. I wonder how it feels for you being part of the orchestral well, texture, what he's doing. Well, there's a lovely clarity. It's, it's slightly Mahler writing in that everything you play can be heard. You know, everything 
so there's a lovely um, gap when the, and suddenly the harp comes in and it's, it's very gratifying. Um, but going on from what Andrew said, I think it's, it's a success. There's, there's everything in it. You know, there's, there's gorgeous tunes and there's a beautiful fiddle solo and then there's a beautiful cello solo and what more do you need, really? You know, and I remember somebody saying it's, it's like the Bible. You know, it's got everything except a car chase. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's still chance for that. <laughs> <laughs> The, is, there, is, there a, is there a danger with it, I wonder? Well, look, in, in terms of perhaps one of the other famous things about this piece is that it's Hitler's favourite opera, and as Lehar himself was asked after the war, he said, it's not my fault he loved it so much. You know, uh, but he had a somewhat um, pragmatic relationship with the, with the Nazi regime. I mean, his, his wife was, was Jewish. She was given special status by, by Goebbels and by Hitler because Goebbels knew how much Hitler loved Lehar and, uh, and, and, and this piece in particular. And allegedly it was paid, played on a loop for two years in the, in the bunker in Berlin. But, um, but all, all of that, uh, um, why was I going on about that? Yes, that's right. Because, well, it's, ju it's just because one of the things about that is, um, uh, and it was also parodied, incidentally, by Shostakovich in the Leningrad Symphony and then by Bartok in the Concerto for Orchestra. We're going to Maxim's. I'm not sure what the English translation is here. Um, but anyway, it, it, I wonder, is there, a, is there a problem, I'm getting to this question, which is whether the, the sweetness of the music or its precisely its potential popularity could be saccharine, it could be too much if, you, if, if, it's, if, it's, if the lily is gilded the whole way through, and d does it ever curdle? Can it curdle in terms of what we're seeing, what we're, what we're hearing? They're such wonderful tunes. I don't, they, they don't know. I think every time we love it. It's just, and actually, I'd rather a member of the orchestra on the first rehearsal last week, who, who isn't usually so effusive, Mm. came up to me and said, I just love the whole of this. It's really, really quite surprising, actually, from... from <laughs> they don't say that every week. Not every... No, right. <laughs> well, there's always a way of... I mean, you, you undercut the sentimentality of the music by ironic dialogue or satirical dialogue, uh, cheeky dialogue. So you, you, keep, you keep the level of mirth going, bubbling away, and then everyone accepts that you can sink into a very, very enjoyable tune for the next section. Um, I mean, it's as simple as that. I don't think it's a complicated piece at all. Thanks. I suppose there's always a, there are complicated balancing acts, aren't there? So there's a one way of thinking, which is it's 1905 and the world, the winds of change are blowing across Europe and here we are making light comedy. And that's, you know, one could say, that you could be critical about that. You say, why are we not thinking about great geopolitical themes? But once you've decided that you still want to make a light comedy and that actually in the 21st century, as we become more and more disparate and more and more divided, evenings that offer something warm that help people kind of open up and help people connect and laugh together and enjoy, enjoy music together, actually increasingly, in my opinion, have more, become more and more essential as something that's a way of uniting a large group of people. There have been productions that have been very interested in the Hitler's connection, the Wagner connection. There was apparently a famous production in Hamburg where you saw all the way around this very gilded, beautiful, decadent world, kind of the Nazis gathering outside, and there they were, and you got the sense of it being um, a decadent bourgeois world that was in decline. But it doesn't feel that's the essence of the music, and the music isn't ironic in that way, and the story isn't really political with a capital P in that way. It feels that it's much more a social comedy, a comedy about class and a comedy about gender, which actually feel very important things to be thinking about now in the way that I don't think anyone would really claim the Merry Widow is the most important way to be thinking about fascism and totalitarianism in the 21st century. So I suppose in a way, as well as celebrating the music, which is extraordinary, we repurpose these pieces to think about things that are, they, they can't, that are useful for in the modern world. Uh, and, well, yeah, Andrew. Well, no, I mean, in, in times of warring conflict and all the rest of it, I mean, what people uh, instinctively want to hold on to are the things that give them joy and happiness in that moment. I mean, I remember reading criticism of um, John Gielgud's letters that he wrote to friends during the war and criticizing him for the fact that he wasn't making any reference to the war and what was going on in the war. Well, who would? If you're living through it, you want to enjoy the good things of life 
Um, everyone knows the bad things of life. We all know about Brexit and all the rest of it. But we're not going to, we're not going to concentrate our, our pleasures on discussing that. We want to enjoy the good things that, that give us artistic satisfaction. And I think that's what uh, the Merry Widow does. Thank you, Andrew. Go on, give him the right <laughs> <laughs> um, talk, Talking of which, Darren, <laughs> what, what, what are we going to see? And I think perhaps... Is it time for the wig? I think, I think it could be time <laughs> This is what we all want to I know. This has all been a fomenting upbeat to this moment. And in terms of then what, what we're going to see, and the, the wigs in particular now. Okay. We had a fitting last week for two of our chorus ladies, one of which couldn't make it to the fitting. So we were trying to show our designer, Esther, what we were creating and whether it was what her design idea was all about. And Emma foolishly said, well, I could put it on. <laughs> Come upstairs, then, we said, and up she came. And we prepared her hair, and we put the wig on, which doesn't fit her brilliantly well, but we could have a look at the hair and the hat. Now, in this production, the hats are extraordinary. They are enormous. I don't think we could probably fit five women in a row on stage. Good luck. Um, because they are so enormous. So we have to find a wig that will not only look good in the period, flatter the person that we're putting them on, but also support these enormous great big hats. The one we've got today is fabulous, but it's not so heavy. We've got some that are the size of a dustbin. Um, so Emma has agreed that we will come and do it again today. So we've got one of the chorus ladies' wigs. They're all supposed to be elderly women of the time, but quite extraordinary. So there's a lot of fun that we're having with them that can make them look as fantastic as possible. So Emma's agreed to show you all her in grey hair, which is what all the ladies' chorus are having to deal with. Those who are trying to dye it out normally in life have to embrace the grey wig because that's what they're all getting. So not all of them are thrilled about it, but they're all going to look wonderful. There's going to be wig envy because some of the shades of grey are more flattering than others. But... That's what we have to deal with. And all the wigs are made by hand by our teams here. So there's like about 150,000 hairs in each wig, all knotted by hand. So Isn't like that people... amazing? I mean, that's a really amazing decision. It's something that you see for the, for the realism and for the, for the brilliance. That we, again, I think we slightly take that for granted, but 150,000, which are all, as you say, All hand knotted. knotted. And if I've done a really good job, you think I've done nothing at all because Precisely, you can't yeah, see you what can't I've see. done. Amazing. It's like we try to make wigs. I mean, there are some exceptions in this production because we've got women with pink hair. It's like really extraordinary pink hair, which is quite obviously a wig because it's so super real that it couldn't be their own hair. But I'm most... Well, we haven't finished those yet, so you can't have them. <laughs> um, but generally what I do is try and make it look like Emma's got this amazing grey hair that we've just dressed into a fantastic style. And so you shouldn't know it's a wig. And sometimes I've got shows where we've got half the people in wigs and half the people in their own hair, and you shouldn't tell the difference between the two. I mean, you can't tell this is a wig. Oh. <laughs> Andrew's got waist-length hair that we have to prep under every day he comes to work. <laughs> So that, that's our deal that we have to do. It's like we don't want to do these elaborate things all the time. It's sometimes doing the smallest thing that nobody even notices. Mm. But sometimes that's even more work because it's like it has to be so finely done. And so each hair with a tiny hook is knotted through a piece of net and pulled through. It's a tiny knot in each one. And it can take up to a week and a half to make a wig. And, and they can cost up to £2,000 each. The cost of the human hair, they're all made from human hair, and it's like long human hair can be £1,000 for one wig. Mm -hmm. And certainly the hair we've got for Hannah, which is all different shades of pink with dark roots on, which is going to look incredible, has cost a fortune. Mm -hmm. And so then suddenly when we were told two weeks ago that all dancers have to look like her in one scene, it was like, well, we can't afford to make those wigs as well. So we had to find a cheaper way of doing that, which we have. But it's like all the, all the principal wigs are all made by hand with really expensive human hair. And, it's like, and then we can reuse them and they go into stock. So we've taken some of the grey wigs out of the E&O stock wigs, but not all of the chorus have a grey wig because they're too young. So we've had to make a lot of work. So it's like, so they're all thrilled to be looking like the shape of the future as it's going to come. Well, listen, do you, do you want to attend to the practical side? I do. Side so what we'll have to do first is to prep Emma's hair as it would normally be done we, for We a can show. talk amongst ourselves. Yeah, you is, that, is that helpful? Or do you want to describe what you're doing? I can describe what I'm doing. No, well, no, <laughs> well, all right. No, fine. But I'll, I'll sit in the middle here. Um, so just either hide all the hair Whilst that's happening, Phil is in on particularly important things, but for, um, you happy to, we're going to sort of watch here and talk here a little bit. Uh, Max, in, in terms of how all this, the realism that Darren's talking about, how does that fit in with, with the aesthetic of, of what we're going to see and experience on, on stage in terms of realism or otherwise? I suppose it's a version of um, the better you do your job, the less you notice it. So when you think something's really, really well directed and you watch a show that's brilliantly directed or brilliantly performed or sung, you think, how could it be otherwise? It seems obvious and it seems natural and you don't really think about 
the singing or the acting or the harp playing or the directing. You just experience it as a story and as music and it communicates something to you. So in a way, it's a huge amount of work to try and make our work invisible, which is both very exciting and very, um, I suppose, good for the ego in a way to realise that when you've done your job well, you become almost invisible and you don't notice yourself because it's just very clear. And I suppose it's also a question about the level of comedy as well. And that's very clear with the wigs, which is that if you're dealing with something heightened and stylized, what you're trying to do is make something big and bold and shocking or surprising or fun, but also how far can you push it before it becomes silly or grotesque or too much? And that's often the question with comedy too. And it's a question about how you leaven the balance between the sentimentality and the comedy, which is that you want something to be both moving and amusing at the same time, which is what a good rom-com should be. And that dosage is very important. What's the heightened level of comedy and drama, but also also, how is it grounded in truth and realism so it becomes believable and touching and affecting? And that's what we're constantly discussing through, both in rehearsals practically, about how big and how dramatic can something be before it feels false or silly or staged or ham or too much? How big can the wig be before it becomes beyond striking into something that feels like a caricature or a grotesque? So that's often one of the balancing jobs that we're doing in all the different departments, both physical and uh, performance. Uh, and in terms of that, what are we going to see on stage, Andrew? What with me? Well, well, with you, and, and just in general, of the, in terms of, is there, is there a look of the production? I, I know, I, 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 I understand. I, this is an impossibly reductive question to something which is in process and about to be. You know, I do understand. But nonetheless, is there, is there, a, is there an aesthetic here? Uh, yes, Andrew. I've, I've suggested how I might want to look myself <laughs> in, in terms of hair, whiskers, and all the rest of it. But um, I'm, I'm waiting to see what will develop. <laughs> um, uh, well, a word then about, uh, about Ben uh, Stone's uh, set design and what we're going to see. Yes, well, I think it's going to be very beautiful. We have uh, one of the things that is amazing about an opera house is it's not the percentage of work like an iceberg that you see on the stage is the tip of a very, very large group of humans all working together. And that although it feels like we're up front fronting the show, you have then, of course, all the musicians who you hear but don't see. And then beyond that, you have the crew on the stages. And then beyond that, you have these huge and wonderful makeup, wig, costume departments. And so the level of craft in the different departments is so extraordinary. And I think it's one of the things that's very much under threat at the moment, the level of craftsmanship and ability to make within these houses, both in carpentry teams or uh, in wig teams, these skills that these old buildings have within them are very, very important uh, and really worth preserving because they lead to a quality that makes the work really, really rich. I still, can someone please answer the question about what it's going to look like? Uh, I, 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 I mean, I'm not, being, I'm not being flippant, really, but I, I just mean, like, what's the set going to... Do you know what I mean? Uh, are you going for something which is like a recreation of 1905 Vienna, so we've got the gildedness, you've got a bit of Jugendstil, or are you going for something that's a bit hyper-real? I mean, I take there's a pink wig. Is it... Uh, what, what's, what's the it's relationship all, it's between... It's all uh, set in a steel box. Good, 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 that sounds good. With, with blood with everywhere. Blood dripping down the back wall and harsh floodlights cutting in. And Andrew in a long 1970s wig. Yeah, and suspenders. I can, we can see it all now. It's, it's so so assuredly conventional then. How dull. <laughs> um, um, Darren, what, what, what are we experiencing over here? What's happening to Emma? Okay, so Emma, Emma is now prepared, as all the singers will be under their wigs, we have to put their hair, so if they've got long hair, we have to wrap all their hair flatly against their head so that you don't end up with a huge ball where your head used to be so it looks really obvious what we've done. So it's about getting it as flat as possible and then the wig can go on top. Um, drum roll. Or... It's very good. So this... <laughs> The whiter the hair, the more expensive it is. The longer the hair, the more expensive it is. If you want to grow it down to your waist, we'll buy it off you for a good amount of money. <laughs> We're always looking for donors. <laughs> Here we go. Ooh. So because this isn't made for Emma, it's not the best fit. And this is why we have so many wigs, because each one is made to fit everybody's head. So at the moment, there's a big gap at the back, which you can't see. And we'll keep her facing this way, because it's better. <laughs> and so what you don't see from the audience is there's a lace front on here. So that's where the hair is knotted really finely, one at a time. And under stage lights, you don't see it at all. So it looks like your hair is growing out of your head. Mm. And so that's where we try and make it as real as possible. And so this is 
essentially a long grey wig which we then had to set in rollers to get curly and then every day the wigs will have to be dressed into this shape. Underneath here is all padding to make it as big as it is because the hats are going to sit on it and that will squash the wig. And after they've had the hats on, they then go to the ball, obviously, when they take their hats off. And many of you ladies will know what it's like when you go to a wedding and you wear a hat and you take it off to eat and you've got squashed hair underneath. We're not allowed to be on stage looking like that. So we're trying to support the hair as much as possible by making it indestructible. It's also it's like they're doing a heavy amount of work on stage, so it's like they've got to be fairly solid. So there's all sorts of stuffing under there to make it sit properly. On top of the wig, <laughs> it's spectacular, it really is. It's a small hat box for those of you listening oh, online. Yeah. <laughs> the size of a small house. Oh. Emma has dressed appropriately for tonight. Colour <laughs> That was very good. Good stage. <laughs> on top of that goes the hat. Amazing. Amazing. It's perfectly coordinated. Yes, she's very good about this. I'm and wearing, actually, I'm wearing it home, Darren. <laughs> I mean, this, the balance of this hat is quite good because we would normally have to pin them on rigidly because with movement and any dancing, they would fall off and then we get shouted at. So there's all bits of crin on here that you can pin through because some of the bigger ones, but it's the feather work on this that Megan's done an amazing job on. Absolutely gorgeous. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well done, Emma. <laughs> you can just sit, sit quietly and not move, you'll be fine. I'll sit still. <laughs> yeah, okay, yes, do. Just, 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 just be on <laughs> Come and look at me later. Yes, you can touch Emma's hair. It is, it is, um, well, it is uncannily. Well, of course, it is real hair. It's astonishing. Um, just, uh, the, the, your, uh, Max, you, as a creative team, your collaboration with the costume designer and, and designer, how long has that been in the process? How, how, much, how long has this, this production of Mary, Mary Widow been in, the, in Genesis? I suppose I had dinner with Daniel Kramer to talk about what we might do at the ENO four years ago. Um, we had a conversation about whether it was the excitement about trying to combine something that was very, very popular and would be really enjoyable to a first-time opera goer, someone who'd never been into a house like this before, with something that could really achieve musical excellence and would also celebrate the tradition of uh, popular music making and operetta. And we thought the Merry Widow was a very good candidate for giving a kind of makeover to that both respected its traditions and its period and the joy of the music and the situation, but also could become a kind of show in a way that it might have been originally and in a way that people would expect if they went to a West End show as well. So probably that took about a year, that conversation with Daniel, for it to become a solid, and, the, and everyone in the house, for it to become a solid thing. And then beyond that, uh, then probably designing over the period of two years. So it's a long and slow process. Mm. The scale of opera is huge. The number of people involved. If you imagine, that is the work we're talking about for one wig and one hat. But then beneath the wig, there is the makeup. And beneath the makeup, there is the singer and the training for the music. <laughs> and then there's the dress. And the dress is the top and the bottom and the shoes. And then there is, you know, and the choreography and the text and dialogue. The number of departments expands exponentially. The, the scale of opera is so extraordinary. And so that really means that the level of planning and the time frame uh, increases exponentially exponentially, certainly in compared to spoken word theatre. How have you found that, I mean, you've, you've just articulated what that difference is, how impressed are you with the way that the machinery works in terms of not only its scale, but how flexible it can be to respond to the things, because presumably when you, get, when you got into the rehearsal room with, with Andrew and all your colleagues, thing, things change, <laughs> or th things are going to be in, in a dynamic uh, state of finding out who's doing what and how, th how things are working, or is, or, yes. is, or is it a fixed concept and then it works? <laughs> Well, opera is much more fixed than spoken word theatre, because in spoken theatre you can make changes much later, whereas opera, the scale of the things that you'd get built and the number of people, you have to put wigs on and shoes on and have to be constant doing their thing. So opera is a much more an art of planning and theatre is much more an art of improvisation. I don't mean you can't improvise on an opera stage, but the process over those years, certainly the years of pre-production, opera requires military-level planning and ideas in advance. I wonder, Andrew, if all of you wish it didn't. I mean, <laughs> given that well, when this piece was new, you know, he wrote it in a couple of weeks or whatever, you know, there's all that turnaround. This is not a piece that took four years to, to make in 1905. I wonder, Andrew, from, this is a more general question in a way, but in a sense about is opera flexible enough to... This is not an Mary operetta Widow house, is, an I mean? is an in-between case because it's not through-composed. 
like uh, many traditional operas. There's speech in it. Uh, there's a lot of speech in it. So it's somewhere between an opera and a spoken play. So inevitably, the, the uh, element of improvisation and evolving the dialogue through improvisation and character interplay becomes very significant and very important. When you have a through composed piece, you know precisely when someone is singing something to someone else and you know exactly when that is happening. Now that has its own freedom. People say it's, it's, it's rigid, but actually it has a freedom to it, if I can just diverse slightly. If, if you know that precisely at a certain moment, a certain action has to be delivered because that's the way the music is written. There is no divergence from that. The timing is written into the music. Then that gives you the freedom to invent the, the, the moment, invent the action up to that moment so that you make it arrive at that moment that it has to arrive at. So it's not restrictive in, in, the, in the way that often, often people think it is. Uh, there is a freedom within those key moments of delivery. Now, with, with spoken dialogue, you, you push this further. You've got much more freedom, of course, and you can find your own uh, timing. These actors have the, have the responsibility, responsibility of finding their own timing for the dialogue, which in an opera, a composer will have done for you. Um, so you're, doing, you're combining two different things. And part of the job is joining up the two schemes of, of flowing uh, seamlessly from one method into the other. So that it all becomes a whole. Is, it also, is there a technical challenge there, switching from singing voice to spoken voice? No, I just speak very loudly. <laughs> <laughs> but it, but it, is, it is a different way of using... It's a different kind of vocal production, isn't it, that you and your well, are saying, or, or, is it, or is it not? Well, it is and it isn't. It is and it isn't. I mean, in a theatre like the Colosseum, one is very aware that you are speaking into a very big space. Uh, and as far as I'm concerned, uh, when I start the dialogue, I'm still aware of that big space which I've been singing into and now I have to speak into. Uh, and the, it, it's all one as far as I'm concerned. I think there is amplification for the, for the dialogue. Yeah. But Andrew is the master of adapting to the circumstances. We were doing some Donizetti a few years ago. The tenor went sick. Oh, this was Le Lisier. Yeah. Yeah. And um, Andrew sang the tenor's recits in reply in Italian. <laughs> yeah, that was a very enjoyable occasion. <laughs> yeah, the poor man, because the cover was ill. And, and of course, um, any tenor that we, found, we could find didn't know the particular English translation that we were doing. So uh, the Colosseum phoned me up and said, oh, we, we, we've got this tenor, but he's got to sing it in Italian. Um, so what do you want to do? I said, well, what do you want me to do? Um, so overnight, I thought, oh, well, this would work rather well, actually, because Dulcamara, being the sort of, uh, you know, quick-thinking, witty chap he is, he would be the sort of man who could reply in Italian to an Italian and then speak in English to everyone else and the audience. So I, I made my replies in Italian to him and gave the asides in English. It was great fun. I enjoyed myself enormously. I don't know what anyone else made of it. I had a great time. I was sure incredibly you, impressed. You, you made the point about how much you were enjoying this uh, in, in the orchestra mm. pit. Uh, now, of course, you're enjoying everything that happens here, but I wonder, do you, this question about what this piece is, is it operetta or in between or whatever it might be, do you, do you wish, would you like to do more of this kind of repertoire in the traditions of, of this building, after all, in terms of vaudeville, music theatre, and everything else that that's hap happens in this space? Do you think there could be more of uh, more operetta in, in Eno's seasons in, in season in, in general? There well, are other good. more other. Well, yes. if it's good, sure. I mean, there, there, are, many, there are many other pieces by Lehar which which are heard much less frequently than, yes, than, than the There's usually a Mary reason Widow. that it's not performed. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> fair enough. That's, yeah. I mean, we have such variety now, and it's marvellous. I think it enriches us all, actually. 
Uh, thank you. Look, ladies and gentlemen, the floor is yours in, uh, for now. It's already become yours anyway. <laughs> thank you. Uh, do, uh, do, would, uh, would you like to wait for, we wait for a microphone for the questions? Is that right? Yes, here we are. The microphone is, is coming to you. you. You were first on the front row. Thank you very much. How are you doing, Emma? I'm sitting as straight as I possibly have you can. <laughs> Good girl. Emma, yeah, you Emma have you developed headache yet? Um, no, because but it's, I, I can say the feeling is kind of like, you know, if you ever try and walk and carry a book on your head, <laughs> that's what I'm experiencing oh. right now. <laughs> you, you, you're doing it beautifully. Anyway, uh, thank you. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to ask about the switch from the singing to the spoken word. Mm -hmm. Because I came to Pirates of Penzance mm -hmm. and the spoken word was in unintelligible. Ah, okay, okay. And they didn't put any surtitles up for, 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 the, for the spoken word. So you're suggesting so there is a the, difference of delivery or in the, in the volume yeah, of the space or whatever. Yeah, mm -hmm. so the kids in the audience at the... The Mike Lee production, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, they sort of switched off when it was spoken. So I was just wondering, because your ear is attuned to the music, and it seems very weak, the well, spoken I, Well, I guess maybe hence the amplification. I can't, anyone want to speak to that? I know exactly what you mean. I can understand that precisely. Um, the thing about surtitling dialogue is, just think about it from a practical point of view. You have a, someone asks you someone on stage, and you have a reply, which is a guaranteed laugh line. Now, at what point does the surtitlist put up that surtitle? If he puts it up as you begin to speak that line, the laugh will come way before you've got to the end of the line. It therefore ruins any sense of spontaneous dialogue delivery and frankly crushes an actor's morale. Absolutely. But, but that, that, now, don't you that, think that's true in comic opera as well, precisely for the same reasons? Well, I'm talking specifically about dialogue. The question was about yeah. dialogue. Yes. I now, <laughs> if, you, if, if, you sing, if you sing a line, I would say, again, if you know it's going to be a laugh line, you, must, you cannot put the surtitle up at the beginning, mm. when the singer begins to sing it because the audience will read the line Absolutely. way before you've got to the end. And again, it's complete demoralization for the performer. That's my reply to that. Now, the other thing is, the, the thing is, the diction of the performers should have been much better. It should have been uh, supervised so that it could be audible in the theater. That's all I'll say about that. Thank you, Andrew. Yes, because uh, oh. uh, if it was a joke and nobody heard it... Well, yeah, indeed, There's no the, point, the, is there? Indeed, the demoralisation is, is infinite. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, it's, one of, it's, a very, it's a very interesting question because, in a way, this, if you think about the modern... The, mo the contemporary way of singing opera that has revolved in response to the size of contemporary opera houses. So if you think about how Baroque opera might have been sung and the scale of the voices, was probably a very different technique to voices that emerged in the 19th century as a way of singing over larger orchestras and in larger houses. So the challenge then becomes how if Theater and Devine is a quarter of the size of the Colosseum, a third of the size of the Colosseum, in which spoken text is much more friendly, yeah. when you're then performing th these sorts of things like uh, The Merry Widow or Magic Flute, which premiered in the same house, which is very text-heavy. How do you find a way of doing that? I suppose also, as people now come to expect slightly more naturalistic acting, because they can see that in West End theatre, which is all mic'd, or they see that on the television, because we all watch TV, the style of acting which you would use to produce your voice to fill a house on this side, a scale, now feels very old-fashioned and very hammy, and so people don't want that sort of acting, because that too is rebarbative to an audience. So you're slightly in a catch-22, because if you do the old way in which from the 19th century people would have filled houses like this with Dialogue. That feels too old-fashioned and too big and ham. But if you go try and be more naturalistic and it's unmiked, you're then in a catch-22 because you can't hear it at the back of the house. So I think the answer is, A, work very hard on diction and work with the singers and the actors like you would in the theatre. And also, that's why we're miking the dialogue, so you can hear it. Oh. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Another question. Uh, 
Um, thank you to the panel. Um, I have a question for Max, I think. You were talking about um, the original in 1905 capturing the zeitgeist of the period, and of course the text de delivered in the vernacular. And I wondered the extent to which the translation you're using has been brought up to date to any extent. I think you used the word repurposing. I just wondered the extent to which that plays out in the text. Do you have to try and uh, bring it up to date, try and make it more relevant to uh, today's audience? Thank you, excellent question, thank you. Well, the text mostly is fairly faithful to the German, and but it is in modern, fresh English. So it's uh, not completely historically correct, as in we are not only using language in terms of phrase that would have happened in 1905, but we are trying to make sure that the situations are historically plausible. So the whole plot revolving around a fan and the fan going missing and the fan having messages on it is kept the same, but is delivered in language that feels... Uh, fresh and contemporary, in a way that I suppose if you saw the film The Favourite recently, that's very much, it's Queen Anne, and we know that they're in Queen Anne period costumes, but if you're a historian or a historian of costume, you probably get it very annoyed. The farthingales are in the wrong places, and some of the words are slightly colloquial, but we know we're in the period, and the point of The Favourite, say, or say Hamilton, is that it's saying we're in the past, but we're using the past to think about contemporary things in a way that feels fresh now, rather than trying to think about the past in a way that feels like a museum or putting a, a glass wall between us and what we're trying to do. Brilliant. Uh, who's, who's, who's done the who's prepared oh, the translation? Uh, April Angelus has done the dialogue. April, who is one of the most celebrated playwrights in the UK. Um, it's wonderful. Uh, she wrote the libretto for Flight, but also big, big commercial successes. She wrote Jumpy, she wrote Playhouse Creatures. Uh, she's one of the most famous playwrights in the UK. And the dialogue was done by Richard, not the sung text, was done by Richard Thomas, who uh, came to fame writing Jerry Springer, the opera, mm -hmm. and then did the libretto for Anna Nicole as well. Thank you. Andrew, do you want to add something? This no, there was someone asking. Ah, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. Yes, thank you, ma'am. Thank you. Just following on from that question, the original, if I've understood it correctly, is basically Hannah was dumped by Danilo because she wasn't good enough in, in, in way back in the past. She wasn't rich enough, she wasn't the right class. This doesn't play well with a modern audience. But when I've been, I've been on YouTube listening, and they're coming together again, and she has no resentment at all, and this great charmer has swept her off her feet again. How have you handled that? <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you very much. Well, I think if you come and see our version, you'll see she has lots of resentment. <laughs> <laughs> Two acts, three acts full of it, <laughs> with humor and a big pink wig, but yes. <laughs> Excellent, thank you. Questions? Thank you, on the front row here, thank you. A any, any, yes, uh, uh, um, oh sorry, was there, was there another? Yeah, here, thank you, thank you. Uh, you mentioned crimp. Did you draw any ins inspiration on the set or the costumes or anything? Because Kim is very glittering and very multifaceted. Did, did the set do something about that one? Yes, you'll see the entire set for Act Two is gold. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose so. It's partly Klimt. Klimt is tricky in a way because Klimt is very busy and diff and complicated, and you, the Klimt shimmers in a way, which is wonderful. Uh, and that's, I think, one of the things that you can hear in the music a little bit. Klimt, that, those kind of shimmering textures on stage are probably too busy to see the singers in front of. And what you want on stage is something that's a little bit simpler, so that the singers are the focus of the action, especially in a character-based piece like this. Here, here. Um, <laughs> 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 Uh, I suppose so Klimt a little bit and also the cabaret of the period so looking a little bit about what was happening in vaudeville and review not so much here but in the Weimar Republic the cabaret was really taking off so you'll see Hannah sings Velia from a moon she flies in on a moon which is a traditional uh, turn of the century cabaret image look and some of the dresses from that uh, so partly from the period not only from the great art but also from the popular art of the period does that go, Alison, for the way you're dealing with the waltzes in the orchestra? Are, are you creating a 
that Viennese culture of the of the turn of the 20th century. In, I think in, we've in only had one rehearsal. I think it'll grow into it. Yes, there's there's more indulgence as it goes on. I think probably. <laughs> Very good. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. More. Thank you. It's <laughs> uh, so on the aisle. Yeah. Hi, it's a very practical question about temperature control. How, is it getting hot under that hat? <laughs> and, and more generally, how, how does everybody cope with vast costumes, wigs, hats? Because from where I sit in the balcony, everyone looks terribly cool and possessed, but they must be sweating like pigs by the end of the show. They do get very hot. It's like, particularly, we've had wigs that we've had to wring out in the interval because they're sodden with sweat. And it's like, it, I mean, you tend to find that when you're doing a, a show that has really big, heavy wool costumes, there's going to be a heat wave. So it's, like, it's one of those things that you have to contend with. And as a performer, you know it's going to happen. And you just have to try and look cool when you really don't feel it. But that's why we have to redress the wigs every time, because they go through such a hammering each time they go on stage. Because naturally, your body heat rises when you're on stage. The stage lights are hot. And if the temperature of the theatre is hot as well, you can melt. So we're, we're trying to keep people not looking sweaty backstage as soon as they come off. It's mopping up. That's mainly what our job is about. <laughs> Emma, you look, you, you, I can tell you are completely cool, but how, how are you temperature? Lovely. Um, I have to say that it, it's that thing where you just, I suppose there, there comes a period of time where you sort of forget that you're wearing it in a yes. way until you, ha I guess, have to walk through a doorway, perhaps. Yes. I mean, you're unfortunately, this is quite a lightweight version of the yes, hat. Yes, this it's, is the light hat. Yes. So we've not even <laughs> pinned anything on. So normally we put lots of pins to secure the wig, lots of pins to secure the hat. So you can virtually hang upside down and it would all stay in place in theory. Um, and it's, like, it's that kind of thing of trying to make an actor, a singer feel secure in what they're wearing and to make sure that... Actually, the worst thing in the world for me is when I see a dance production, I do a lot of Matthew Bourne's dance shows, and, and if you have a wig and you start seeing someone moving around and the style starts having a little bit of movement in it, and then that little bit of movement is going to get to a bigger bit of movement. And you're in the audience, there's nothing you can do about it until the whole thing just collapses. And then I get in trouble. So there are so many bits of pins and grips to try and keep styles in shape. Because it's a really arduous task to go on stage for sometimes three hours. So we want to make sure that nothing collapses. If you come and something does, it really wasn't my fault. <laughs> There's nothing worse than suddenly feeling your, your moustache is flapping around. <laughs> and uh, a lot of uh, the, the weak people are, are very uh, sympathetic and they don't want to put too much spirit gum on, so they just put a, a little dab on and stick it on. And I know full well that the thing will be flapping around by the interval. You've got to lay it on like, you know, dolloping marmalade. It's the only way it will stay on because I get so hot it will come off at the, the least excuse. It's a horrible thing to, to do, though. I hate... I must have, most of my roles involve side whiskers or a moustache and sometimes the chin piece. But if I've got a full beard, then I always ask that we cut it into three sections because you can't have a complete beard because you can't open your mouth. You've got to feel the freedom to open your mouth. So you cut it into three sections, two side pieces and a piece there. Uh, what, what, and, all, and also you cut your moustache in half, half as well yes. because you've got yeah. to have flexibility. What, what facial your, hair have you got in this one? In, what, in this one? In this one yeah. Well, I don't know. <laughs> He's certainly got some. There's going to be some sideburns and a moustache. I'm just really looking good. forward to seeing yeah, it. Cut into three pieces. <laughs> uh, look, so this is going to be an absolutely unflappable, uh, totally supported carousel of pleasure, this show. Thank you all for being here, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Alison. Thank you, Max. Thank you, Darren. Thank you, Emma, of course. Thank, thank you. you. Uh, thank you.